The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website, northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. If you will open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This week, my wife Allison and I were watching uh, a short interview on national television with a contestant from a reality TV show. And this person was, uh, was praised for having the courage to have deep conversations with other contestants in this game, um, even though he was competing against them to win the big prize money. And he was specifically applauded for saying that Muslims, Jews, and Christians all worship the same God and that we're all just trying to get to God somehow. He is a Muslim, and so Islam just happened to be the path or the vehicle that he chose, but we're all trying to get there somehow. And he was admired and complimented and applauded for saying that. And I want you to listen. That is one of the most dangerous lies that Satan has ever concocted. The reason Satan wants men to believe that lie, the lie of relativism, the lie that there are different paths leading to the same destination and it doesn't matter which you choose, is because that lie cheapens the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you this morning that not only is there just one true God, but there is only one way to reach Him, and that is through His Son, Jesus. And the reason for that narrow way is really quite simple. It's because God chose Jesus to be that way. And when men claim there are other ways, it simply proves they are rejecting the choice that God made. But man's rejection of God and His... Uh, man's rejection of God and His chosen Son is nothing new. It's not a modern invention. We may, we may paint it up as something modern in the sense that we, we disguise it with the term political correctness. We may look at it a little differently, but men have been rejecting God and God's chosen for <laughs> since time began. In fact, that rejection was prophesied about in the Old Testament. It was a rejection that came to a climax when the Jews rejected Jesus and he hung on a cross being crucified. Sadly today, people continue to cast Jesus aside or they just view him as simply one possibility, one way among many to be right with God. The way you respond to Jesus is the most important decision that you'll ever make. And if you've never trusted in Him to save you, I pray that this morning that you repent and you trust Him and this morning is when your eternal destiny changes. For those of us who are saved, we need to realize that Jesus Christ is no less crucial in continuing to serve God both individually and as a church than He was in order for us to come to God in the first place. If we want to be truly spiritual, 
truly acceptable to God in our lives and as a church, we have to keep coming to Jesus because everything we are is built on Him. Because that's the way God intended it to be. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read verse 4 through 10, a section that is so rich and deep with meaning. But then we're going to come back and just focus on two verses this morning, verse 4 and 5. Peter writes in verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively or living stones, are built up into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter is writing to a very privileged and blessed group, is he not? The way he describes these people in verse 9 and 10 that we just read is just awesome. And with all those blessings in mind, look back at verse 3, which we looked at last week, and Peter said, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Do you think these people have tasted that? Absolutely. These people are so blessed. And we learned last week, so from, chapter, from verse 2, they should desire the Word of God to grow in it. And now as we move forward in verse 4, keep coming to the Lord. He starts off verse 4 by saying, to whom coming? And this is a continual thing. And remember, he's writing to believers. Even after salvation, we need to keep coming to the Lord. This is an obvious reference to Jesus Christ. The rest of the verse makes that clear. He's the chosen one of God. He's the one rejected by men. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But first I want you to notice the connection between verse 3 and 4. In verse 3, Peter pulled from Psalm 34. And he mentioned the graciousness of the Lord. Now if you look back at Psalm 34, we, we, we realize that the Lord is Jehovah. Okay, when David wrote Psalm 34, he used Jehovah, the official covenantal name of God that, that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, that I am who I am name. But now, Peter, moving into verse 4, equates Jehovah with Jesus. You know why you don't see the name Jehovah in the New Testament like you do in the Old Testament? It's because you see the name Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Lord. 
And Peter knows that. And so he, he makes this connection between Psalm 34 and then now. If you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom keep coming? And that very Lord, Peter describes as a living stone. We'll see this word stone used several times in this context. And it's, it's a word that, that doesn't come from Peter's nickname. Remember Peter, his nickname sort of means rocky. It's a different word than that. And this word has its own sort of connotation to it. And one author says, this is the usual word used in connection with the construction of a building. If you've ever seen even pictures of Jerusalem in modern day, you see a lot of buildings built with white stone rocks. Uh, at least at some point, I don't know if they still have this rule, but there's a, you know, a construction code in parts of Jerusalem at least where you have to build with this look. So that kind of keeps this white stone building look going. You've seen neighborhoods that sort of have rules about how you have to build something to sort of keep the, the ambiance of this road going or whatever it may be. So this is one of those stones that, that's a prepared stone that was used for building. It wasn't just a word for a random rock that you might see on the ground or on the roadside or in a field. But one prepared to be used in construction. A useful rock. Something that you can, can build with. But the strange part is that this prepared stone, Peter says, is living. Have you ever looked at a rock and thought, that rock's alive? I never have. When we think of the word stone or rocks, we just think of just something that's lifeless. Something that's just, something just sitting there. So the obvious reference then of, of Christ being a living stone is a reference to his resurrection. He is alive. Now, obviously, you can't have a resurrection without first having a death, right? And Peter alludes to that next. Notice he says, a living stone disallowed indeed of men. The word disallowed, you may have a translation that says rejection or rejected. It's a very strong word that is very condemning of mankind because it's, it's, it's a deep rejection. It's not just a simple passing rejection. This is, this is not how most children try vegetables. If you have, have ever had children or you've seen, uh, seen a child at a dinner table and you say, try that. They don't normally give this careful test to this vegetable. They don't scrutinize it, right? They don't, they don't really smell it and, and then taste it and, and eat it and, you know, see how it is. They give it one look and they go, I don't like that. And what do parents say? Well, try it. This rejection is not like a child eating vegetables. This is a rejection after careful examination, after close scrutiny. One, one definition is, is that it's throwing something out as the result of a test. And here it even gives an indication that, that mankind has completed its test, that, that it's finished. And the decision to reject Jesus is sort of final to them. In fact, this word is used almost always in the New Testament to describe man's rejection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about, especially during the life of Christ, and this word talking about rejecting after a test, does that not fit? Wasn't Jesus 
so carefully examined, so scrutinized. And yet, even though he was perfect and sinless and blameless, what did men ultimately do? Rejected him. How many times did did people come up with Jesus or come up to Jesus with questions that they didn't care the answer to? They were just trying to trick him, just trying to test him. How often did the Pharisees watch every slightest move he made to try to find something wrong with him? And yet when they finally arrested him, do you remember they had to bring false witnesses in to try to make something stick? It's going to take false witnesses to condemn the perfect man. And when they finally brought him before the Roman governor Pilate, and he tried Jesus, what did he say three times about Jesus? I find no fault in him. Yet what did Pilate do with Jesus? He rejected him. He bent to the will of the religious leaders who were yelling, crucify him. And so Jesus was closely examined, scrutinized. He was tested closely. And yet men said, we don't want him. They rejected him because he was not the Savior that they wanted. But notice what Peter says here. Even though men rejected him, God sure didn't. Disallowed. Indeed of man or men, but chosen of God and precious. Brother Penn said about this verse, isn't it strange that we refuse things that God chooses? Chosen is a word we've seen before in First Peter. It means elected. God elected His Son. He chose Him just like He had foreordained Him to be a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God chose His Son, elected Him, and He sees value in Him. This word precious that Peter uses here, don't think of, uh, of precious in the sense of something cute and adorable. You know, like, oh, that's just precious. But it means something that's worthy. Something that's valued or valuable, something prized. It's like we would say a precious gem or a precious stone. So God chose Jesus. He highly values him. He considers the son to be priceless. And yet men look at the very same son and reject him. Apparently men and God value things differently. Apparently, we have a different method of assigning value than God does. Have you ever heard our old phrase, one man's trash is another man's treasure? That's why garage sales are so popular. You may go to a garage sale and, and you're looking through you know, cheap stuff, and you find something that's on sale for a quarter, but to you it's worth a lot more than that. Maybe you know it's a collectible that someone else might, might pay $100 for, and you can turn that quarter into $100 just like that. What an investment. But obviously the person selling it doesn't look at it as valuable, or they wouldn't be getting rid of it for a quarter. You value things differently. What's priceless to God is unfortunately garbage to a lot of men. Just throw it out. And nothing makes that truth more evident than the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only was, was Jesus crucified because of the Jewish rejection to him and Pilate's spinelessness, 
Obviously, there was no value in Jesus Christ to them or they wouldn't have crucified him. But even the cross itself is viewed differently by man than, than, uh, than by God. How do men view the cross of Christ as a whole? To a man, the cross of Christ was and still is a humiliating, embarrassing, shameful display where a sad, pathetic figure suffered and died. It's a cross. It's the lowest form of execution imaginable in the first century. But what does God see when he looks at the cross? To God, the cross of Jesus Christ was a glorious display of sacrificial love where his chosen son willingly gave his life for the sins of the world who would reject him anyway. That's what God chose. He chose and elected and prized his son. So think about this. What kind of a slap in the face is it to God and to Jesus to say there are other paths that lead to God? If there were other paths than this one, why would God even let or allow or suggest that Jesus go through this? There's only one path to God, and it's the one he chose. Paul said there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We read earlier where Peter was, uh, was preaching, and he said, there's no other name under heaven that you can use to be saved. Jesus Christ is the God-chosen, highly-valued, living stone. He's it. But Peter then quickly jumps into verse 5. Remember this stone referred to something you could use in construction. It's, it's a stone you could build with. And if we sort of keep that thought in our mind, keep that construction metaphor going, which Peter does, it takes more than one stone to build something, right? That's where you and I come in. Look at verse 5 again. Ye also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Here Peter refers to believers as living stones, just like he referred to Jesus as what we would maybe say the, the ultimate living stone. There's a difference between us and Jesus in the sense that he's the cornerstone, and the, the next few verses make that clear, and we'll talk more about that next week, Lord willing. But since we've trusted in Christ... We share in His life. We share in His resurrection. We're alive just like He's alive because of His life. And because of our faith in Him, we too are building blocks for God. We are prepared stones that are built up into a spiritual house. You say, what is, what is Peter talking about there? What's this spiritual house? This is the only place in the New Testament where believers are referred to as living stones. But there are other places that describe a church as God's house 
or God's temple or a dwelling place of God's Spirit built with believers upon the foundation or the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And listen to this. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's very similar to Peter's words here. And I love the way Paul describes it. I love that translation of, of a dwelling place. Because when we, when we talk about a house or we think about a house, we think about uh, brick and mortar and wood and walls, and, and that's okay. But isn't a house more than that? We're not just talking about the framework of a house. Why do you build a house? It's built to live there. You don't just build a house to look at the house from the outside. Some of y'all are about to finish up building a house. Are you just going to look at it when it's done or are you going to move in? You're going to move in and dwell there. You build a house to be there. And so a true New Testament church is a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And we're not talking about the walls of this church, of this building, I should say. We're not talking about the pews and the carpet and the ceiling. A church is not built with stones. It's built with living stones. It's built with people. People who as individuals are indwelt by the Holy Spirit because He sealed their hearts. He's the down payment on their salvation because they've trusted Jesus, because they've been saved. And when they come together corporately, visibly, I don't know how God does it. But he builds a spiritual house for himself to dwell. It's amazing. And listen, if God's not present among us when we worship, something's wrong. What's the point of being here if God's not here with us? We're here to worship him. In fact, that's what... That's what our whole point of coming together is. That's the function of this church. Notice Peter continues and he describes this spiritual house as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Peter calls us a royal priesthood in verse 9. And obviously the idea of a priesthood sends our minds back to the Old Testament where we think about the law of Moses and the priests and all the things that they did and the way they, uh, they worshipped under the law. In the Old Testament, it was both a privilege and a responsibility to serve as a priest. And under the law of Moses, only the Jews from the tribe of Levi could serve as a priest. And they were responsible for worship at the temple. And one of the main responsibilities was that the priests would they would handle the worship of sacrificing the animals. I heard someone say this before, and it's always stuck with me. The, the priests, those who sacrificed the animals, their job was much more like a butcher than a preacher. 
being a priest was bloody because you, you took those animals and you offered them on the altar as sacrifices to the Lord. In fact, this word that Peter uses as offer here in verse 5 actually has the idea of carrying something up. And it was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe a priest carrying up the sacrifice and putting it on the altar. But the priesthood that we've been entrusted with and the sacrifices that we should be making are a little different now, aren't they? It has nothing to do with animal sacrifices. Those Old Testament sacrifices were simply pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice of God's chosen Son, Jesus Christ. And now that He's given His life, the sacrifices that we lift up before God, Peter says, are spiritual. Spiritual sacrifices. That's what our worship should be. And that involves several things. When we come together as a church... We better worship in spirit and in truth as Jesus described in John chapter 4. Spiritual sacrifices cannot be fleshly. They can't be appealing to the flesh. It's a spiritual thing. When we teach and preach, the messages better be truthful and spiritual from the Word of God, which Peter just told us to crave. It's not spiritual sacrifice if I get up here and tell jokes, tell a few funny stories, and then say, hope you all have a good week. See you next Sunday. When we, when we give, we better do it with cheerful hearts. When we sing, when we sing our praises, do it cheerfully in worship to the Lord. When we pray together, it's in a, it's in a, a humble place knowing that without Jesus Christ, how could we even pray? It's spiritual worship. And there are other places in the New Testament that sort of talk about sacrifices. And in Romans, Paul talks about presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. You should offer your, your, your whole life as spiritual worship to the God who saved you. The author of Hebrews says this, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. That's what we better do every time we meet. And you can do that in your life as well. Praise the Lord with your lips. The next verse in Hebrews says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There are other things that the New Testament mentions as sacrifices. I like how one author just summarizes it. He says, The sacrifices Peter mentions are expressions of worship by the redeemed offered in gratitude and self-surrender. Simply put, we are here to worship God. This is more about God than it is about you. Now, I don't mean that we don't get anything out of worship. I don't mean that there's no benefit to us from being here. Of course I don't mean that. But there are too many churches today that make, quote, church all about them. It's all about God. We're here to worship Him, to offer spiritual sacrifices to Him. Peter says that He must accept, acceptable to God. And that word acceptable just means He receives them. He welcomes them. It means He's pleased with our efforts. 
And notice that any sacrifice acceptable to God must be offered by and through who? By Jesus Christ, that living stone that was rejected. God will not accept any praise that does not come through His Son. Say, I'm praising God, but I don't care a thing about Jesus. Then you're not praising God. He does not accept that. Because he chose Jesus. In order to please God and be acceptable to him, a sacrifice has to meet his requirements. It has to be done the way he lays out. And if it's not done that way, then it's not a pleasing aroma to God. It stinks. Ask Cain if God will accept any old sacrifice. Just because something looks religious doesn't mean it's truly spiritual. I want you to sort of think back to the Old Testament. We, you know, we've been talking about priests and sacrifices. And in the Old Testament, when the Jews did not worship according to God's standards, what happened? God didn't accept that worship. When they brought lame animals to sacrifice instead of what the law required of a, of a spotless one. Did God accept that sacrifice? Absolutely not. He didn't accept that. So when we do things at North Bryant, they better conform to God's Word and His standard. Which is why we focus our services around His Word, around singing praises to Him and and praying and giving and hopefully those spiritual things that God accepts. There's a lot more things that other churches may do. But we have to stick to the Word. Far more frequently, though, in the Old Testament, the problems with the Jews' worship wasn't actually what they did at the temple, but what they did every other day of the week. A lot of times in the Old Testament, the Jews did the physical things God asked for. They kept the feasts, they offered sacrifices, they burned incense, they went through the motions, is what we would say. But their lifestyles were completely immoral. The priests were just going through the motions, Uh, the hearts of the people were drenched in sin. And I want you to listen to what the Lord told the Jews through the prophet Amos. When they were doing all the worshipful activities... But their lives were filled with immorality. God said this, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Say, what does that matter to us today, Brother Matt? If North Bryant is to be a dwelling place for the Spirit of God, if we're to offer truly acceptable spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus, that doesn't magically happen at 11 a.m. Sunday morning. It starts Monday morning when the alarm goes off. 
every day of your life matters. If we live immoral, unloving, unkind, malicious lives Monday through Saturday and then try to come together on Sunday and offer spiritual sacrifices, God will look at our worship the same way He did the Jews' worship in the Old Testament and He will say, quit singing Amazing Grace if you're not going to show grace in your life. Quit preaching sermons about love if you're not going to show love in your life. Quit putting money in the offering plate if you're not willing to help someone in need. If our hearts and lives are not right with God first, then all the preaching and singing and praying and giving that we do here won't make it past the ceiling. But if we follow the teachings that Peter has been giving us the past several verses, we won't have to worry about that. I want you to look back into chapter 1 and just be reminded of all the individual encouragements and commands that Peter has been giving these believers that should change their lives on a daily basis. Commands that if we follow individually, how much would that change our church? Look all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 13, and Peter, Peter taught us to prepare our minds to hope in Christ's grace. Then in verse 15 and 16, he told us to live a holy life because our God is holy. In verse 17 through 21, he, he told us to take this opportunity seriously because God took your redemption seriously enough to send His Son. In chapter 1, verse 22, He commanded us to love one another with a fervent, pure heart. Then we get into chapter 2, and in verse 1, He told us to lay aside all those things that might hinder love. Get rid of malice, guile, hypocrisies, envies, evil speakings. Those things don't have any place in your life. And then in verse 2, crave the Word so that you can grow up spiritually. My goodness, if we're doing those things every day of the week, when we come together as a church for corporate public worship, it will be powerful, beautiful, and above all, acceptable to God. Because everything we do, everything we offer, can be done with pure hearts and through and by Jesus Christ. We have to come to God on His terms. The way He prescribes. And in our lives as Christians, as believers, as a church, that has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Our purpose together is to worship God, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to Him, and we cannot do that if we're not focused on Jesus. If we're not concentrating our efforts on Him, if our worship isn't offered in His name, if, we're not, if it's not in spirit and in truth, it's not what God wants. Remember, He's the living stone Without Him, we can't be built up anyway. Keep coming to Jesus. And if you're lost, please do not listen to the lie of this world that there are many paths leading to the same destination. There are really only two paths. There's a narrow way and there's a broad way. 
The narrow way leads to life, and the broad way leads to destruction. And Jesus is the narrow way. He's the only road connecting humanity to God. I don't care what this world says. I know what the Bible says. God chose him, and if you will repent and trust him, you'll be saved. A lot of people in this world value Jesus Christ differently than God does. Don't you be one of them. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.